focus more on what I believe is the absolute uh, solution to the problem, and not just that problem, but as you'll see in just a moment, it's the, it's the solution to every problem we have. It's the answer to every need we have. And in Isaiah chapter 36 and verse number 5, by the way, we spoke about Isaiah last week, and so we're going to look at his life uh, in a different way tonight. Verse 5, I'll explain the context later on, but for now, we'll just read this verse. I say, sayest thou, but they are but vain words. I have counsel and strength for war. Now, on whom dost thou trust that thou rebellest? against me. The title of the message in the text for the message is found in these words, On Whom Dost Thou Trust? I've heard a lot of sermons over the years from the book of Isaiah, but I've never heard a sermon from this verse. And here is a question that everybody needs to answer. At first glance, whenever you hear this or read this, uh, it, it, it seems like it must have surely come from the prophet Isaiah to the, to the people or, or to the king or to someone else, but it didn't. Uh, you might think this question came from God, uh, pinning us down on the subject, as it were, and demanding an answer, but it didn't come from God. The fact of the matter is, this question came from a foe rather than a friend. It came from, from Israel's enemy. And so let me give you a little bit of background so you'll get the picture. As I mentioned last week, Hezekiah began his reign as the king of Judah, that's the two southern tribes, at the age of 25. Remember his father, Ahaz, the most wicked king that there had ever been, had led the people astray. And due to his idolatry, he was overthrown by his enemies. And in, in an effort to, to escape defeat, Ahaz emptied out the house of God of all of its treasures. He closed the house of God and instructed the people to worship the heathen God of their enemies so as to gain them favor, to get on their good side. And this is the very worst form of, of compromise possible. And so that's what it's like whenever Hezekiah comes to power, knowing that his father, who was such a wicked king that the nation even refused to give him a proper burial, knowing that his father has put them in this situation, so he becomes the king with this heavy burden upon his shoulders. And then, early during his reign, the Assyrians, who had conquered the, the ten northern tribes, the Assyrians launch an attack on them. Uh, and, and, and so now they're under this pressure also. So only the little nation of Judah remains. If, if anybody ever had a reason to feel helpless, it was Hezekiah. Now, before we go on, maybe it would be good to stop and to think about this. We look at a situation like Hezekiah was in, or we think about the moral climate of our nation today and the situation that our churches are in and so forth, 
And sometimes we conclude that things are just really too bad, that we've crossed the point of no return, that nothing of any great eternal value can be accomplished. But the fact of the matter is, our best chance for revival is when things are at their worst, not at their best. Because people usually don't turn to God until conditions are at their lowest ebb. And so in this story here, we find the people of Judah found hope through the helpfulness of Hezekiah. Because as soon as he ascended to the throne, he challenged the nation to turn to God. Thank God for, for leaders like that. And so he has challenged them to, 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 to repent from the error of their ways. And so uh, at this point, he reopens God's house. He cleanses the house. He, he offers up the, the sin offering. And so the, the nation is finally back on track again. And the songs of the Lord could be heard throughout the land. Revival has come and now there was a reason to rejoice. And it was all because of one man who dared to stand for what was right. Thank God for Hezekiah. One man, and I remind you that one person, man, woman, boy or girl, can make a difference in their little part of the world. It can happen in churches where one person gets a heavy burden on their heart to pray for revival. And, and God has a way of using people to do things that we never imagined possible. So that's where we're at whenever we come to this, because one man decided to do what was right. Now, that's a great start. But up jumped the devil. Right then, when everything seemed to be finally going right, we've got a leader on the throne taking us in the right direction. We've reopened the house of God and everything's going fine. And here comes the devil. The messengers that Hezekiah sent throughout the land were laughed at to scorn. But then, worse than that, I guess you could say, is the fact that Sennacherib, who was the king of Assyria, he enters into the picture. And so here again, we have a reminder of the fact that even when revival comes, even when God is blessing, when we have decided to make our wrongs right, we make a commitment to the Lord, mark it down, that commitment is going to be put to the test. As soon as we resolve to do what is right, that's when things usually start to unravel, when things go wrong. The devil will see to that. When we're out of the will of God, Satan doesn't, he doesn't have to bother with us then. He has us exactly where he wants us. And so you could say it's just a hands-off kind of thing. He doesn't need to do anything. But when our heart is revived and we become useful again to the kingdom of God, that's when he attacks. And so, in one sense, we know little or nothing, as it were, about the wiles of the devil until we really get serious about serving God. So with all of that in mind, I want to take you back to the story now, and I want you to look at verse 1 of this same chapter, and here we see the conflict. The conflict. Verse 1 says, Now it came to pass in the fourteenth year 
of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against all the defense cities of Judah and took them. Now notice the enemy, first of all, took the fence cities, but that was just the beginning. And now he moves on to planning on attacking Jerusalem proper. This is the very heart of the nation. He wants the throne. He wants the power. He wants the control. And he knows if he can capture Jerusalem that he has, he has put a stake in the heart of the people. And so he's taken the outlying areas to gain a foothold in the land. Uh, which, by the way, reminds us that Satan usually starts with the little things. He didn't attack Jerusalem proper at the beginning, but rather it was to work his way from the outside in. And that's the same way, the same kind of conflicts that we face in our everyday life. I think Paul was alluding to that in Romans chapter 7. He talks about the things that he would do that he finds himself not doing and and so he's speaking about a struggle that all of God's people go through. And it just might be that Satan is attacking you in what we normally refer to as those little things. They're not big major issues that get attention, but it's the little things. It might be that Satan is whispering in your ear, well, never mind having those morning devotions. After all, you need your rest. You've got a tough day ahead of you. Uh, you got a full schedule. You need your rest. You don't have time to, to just sit and read the Bible. Don't worry about reading the Bible because you've got too much to do. Or he might say, you're just too busy to waste time praying. You've got to be up and at it and on the road and get things done. And we can always think of 40, 11 different things that we need to do, at least in our mind. And so we, we push aside the discipline of Bible reading and of prayer. Or the devil might be reminding us this really isn't a good time for you to be witnessing to your friend. I mean, after all, you might offend them. Uh, you know, it, it, it might be that what you say will do more damage than good. It's not a good time. Just wait till some other time to witness to your friend. Listen, friend, we can never speak to the wrong person about the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody needs to hear the gospel, and it's always a good Good time as it were to take advantage of those opportunities when we can speak to people about the Lord. So don't let Satan keep you from being a witness to those that you love. The devil might be saying, well, you, you, especially during this crisis, you need to forget about tithing. After all, you've got bills to pay. It might be that he's saying, you know, it's not going to hurt you to miss a few church services. What's the big deal? Well, you know, we keep going down the same old road time after time after time and after, after time. And pretty soon it wears a rut. We find ourselves in a rut that eventually becomes a grave. So Satan, in the days of Hezekiah, launches his attack. It's one that starts out on the perimeter, working its way into the heart of the nation. And this list of things could go on and on and on. And, and the best news I can give you is resist him from the very beginning. If we give an inch, he'll take a mile. And there's so many times that spiritual-minded people 
that really want to live for God will put a lot of emphasis on things that, well, in the mind of others, they seem to be nitpicking. It's not that big of a deal. It's not that important. But they know that if they don't stop the attack right then, right there, that it's going to lead to something else. And all of us need to keep that in mind because as surely as Hezekiah was in this conflict, you and I are in a conflict today and the devil is going about seeking whom he may devour. Now, in the middle of a conflict, under pressure, there are many times that we make the mistake of acting out of character. And I want you to notice the compromise that happens as a result of that. Second Kings chapter number 18 records the response from Hezekiah to what was going on. And it says in verse 14, Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria to Lechwish, saying, I have offended, return from me. That which thou puttest on me will I bear. And the king of Assyria appointed unto Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house. At that time did Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah king of Judah had overlaid and gave to the king of Assyria. This is the record of what happened between verse 1 and verse 2 of our chapter. And Hezekiah, Hezekiah decides that the way to deal with this conflict is to make a compromise. You know, here after all of the good that he has accomplished, he does something so shameful as this. It's sickening to think about the fact that here this rock-solid man of God who brought the people back to God sold out to the enemy. And the fact is that the compromise did not make things any better it make things, made things worse. And it always happens that way. Whenever we give in to temptation, whenever we make a compromise in our doctrines, when we try to appease the wrath of our enemies, we're, we're not gaining ground, we're losing ground. And all this did was to embolden Sennacherib. I mean, you know, he, he can see, well, I, I'm, I'm making great gains here. I, I'm, I'm getting this under control. So here is a compromise in time of conflict. And whether we like it or not, we need to realize that we're living in a world of conflict. It's all around us. And, you know, we tend to divide it all up into the political and, uh, you know, the moral realms and so forth. But in reality, it all relates to the spiritual life of God's people, all of it. Whenever Paul was speaking about, you know, the powers that are in this world, and he speaks about the the powers, the unseen powers, the spiritual powers that we don't even see. We, and most of the time, we have no idea what we're really dealing with. We face an unseen enemy. So we're in this conflict, and whatever you do, don't compromise. But when we come to Isaiah chapter 36, 
in verses 2 through 10, and I hesitate to read all of these verses here. You might want to follow along, and I'll just comment on some of them, because in these verses we see the challenge. In other words, you're going to see a change of tactics. Now, Sennacherib is doing everything in his power to conquer the nation, and Hezekiah is evidently assisting him in that he's making these compromises. And so Sennacherib begins to change his tactics, and, 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 and Hezekiah is caving in. And so you could say this is an example of psychological warfare. Instead of just bringing the, the, all of the large armies down all at one time, uh, there, he, he figures that he can win over the nation without firing a shot, as it were. So his whole purpose is to strike fear into the heart of Hezekiah and his people. And you've got to say, in one sense, this plan of his is as brilliant as it is demonic. You know, Satan's not stupid. And uh, and so he will use whatever means is that's necessary in order to gain the advantage over us. Now, verse 4 and 5 of this chapter, the first thing that happens is that he questioned the basis of Hezekiah's confidence. And that we find that in, in our text. On whom dost thou trust? Question mark. In other words, who are, you, who are you depending upon? Who do you have confidence in? He's trying to discourage Hezekiah, he's trying to destroy his courage, and, and in doing so, he attacks his faith. Question, oh, do you really believe this, this God of Israel? On whom dost thou trust? Then verse 6, I want you to notice that he criticized his plans there. He said, Lo, thou trustest in the staff of this broken reed on Egypt, Whereon, if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all that trust in him. And now the idea here is that, and, and Sennacherib knew this, that Hezekiah, Hezekiah was likely going to turn to, to Egypt for help because Egypt is about to be overrun also. They're in danger. They would like nothing more than to have a partner in crime, as it were, and try to destroy the Assyrians. But here Sennacherib is telling him that an alliance with Egypt's going to be useless. And by the way, that was a true statement. Whenever you read all of the prophecies related to this, God told them, it's not going to do you any good to run down into Egypt. They're not going to spare you from the judgment that's coming up on you. Now, we generally think about Satan using lies, and he certainly does that. But believe me, he uses the truth when it's to his advantage. And so here he's trying to destroy the courage by questioning the confidence of Hezekiah and criticizing his plans. I know what you're thinking. You're going to run to, to the Egyptians and you're going to join with them and, and through the unified efforts you hope to destroy me. Well, it's not going to work. That's like a staff that will break in your hand. Then verse 7, he questioned here his relationship 
with God. But if thou say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it, is it uh, not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah hath taken away and said to Judah and to Jerusalem, ye shall worship before this altar? Uh, I mean, this is striking a blow at his very spiritual heart, you might say, questioning his relationship with God. How awful it is to think that we would compromise and live our lives in, a, in such a way that our neighbor, our co-worker, our classmate, or even our own family would begin to question our relationship with God. May it never be so. Now in verse 10, he actually had the audacity to claim that he was coming to Hezekiah in the name of the Lord. God sent me. That's basically what he's saying there. By the way, Satan's messengers often come as angels of light. Just because someone is religious, just because they carry a Bible in their hand does not mean that they're not messengers of Satan. Whenever they pervert the truth of God's Word, believe me, that's not coming from God. But yet here, here Sennacherib is doing his best to convince him that God has sent me with this proposal. And then verse 16, he presents an, an agreement. You know, well, let's just come into agreement as it were and we'll, uh, and everybody will be better off. We won't have to shed any blood. We'll just reach an agreement on this deal. Well, you can't make peace with an enemy like that. There can never be any agreement between Satan and God, nor between God's people and those satanic powers that would pull us away from God. Now, verse 17, this might in some way be the most shocking of all. If you read it, this is what you find, that he suggested that that he could care for them better than Jehovah could. Now believe me, some of the people of Judah might have been thinking that. They might have been thinking back to what had happened to those ten, uh, those ten northern tribes that they've been conquered by the Assyrians. Where was God whenever they were destroyed? And where is God now when we're being threatened? And Sennacherib knows, no doubt, what some of them are thinking. And now he's trying to convince Hezekiah, if you'll just come into agreement with me, I'll take care of you better than your God can. I mean, wow, that is the highest form of arrogance. But remember, it was Satan who claimed to be greater than God. He's going to lift himself up even above God himself. Now, we might think, well, surely I'd never be so foolish as to make a mistake like that. And yet, and yet, in the world that we live in, there are those who put more trust in the government than they do God. All it takes to gain the vote of some people is for, is for someone to assure them that, well, the government will take care of you. We'll provide your health care. We'll put food on your table and clothes on your back. We'll take care of you as though God couldn't. It always pays for us to do as, 
as Jesus told us in Matthew 6, 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things shall be added unto you. Believe me, it doesn't pay to compromise. We need to rise up and meet the challenge. We need to do, as we're going to see later, we need to make a choice, and the right choice. Now, notice in in verse 21, Here we see the first choice that Hezekiah makes. He he says, but they held their peace and answered him not a word. Talking about the messengers that Hezekiah had sent out. But they held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's command was saying, answer him not. That reminds me of what Jesus did when he refused to get into an argument as it were. Even when he was falsely accused, he did not answer back. And here we see the king refusing to waste time arguing with the enemy. It never pays to do that. When we know what's right, we ought to proceed ahead with our mission, doing what is right, doing what God says, you know, and let let the results be determined by what God wants to accomplish. But then in Verse 1 of chapter 37, we see the second thing about the choice, and that is they made the choice to return to God. It came to pass, when King Hezekiah heard it, that he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. That's the only way to ever really get the help that you need. I mean, he is showing a repentant heart. Goes back to the house of God where he should have been, where he should have stayed, where the emphasis should have remained. And if we're going to get things right, we have to make that choice. Not only that we resolve to do something, but we have to make the, re- the choice to repent and to turn back to God. And that brings us right back to where we started this message. Again in verse 5, on whom dost thou trust. Sennacherib is saying, if you'll trust me, I can take care of you better than God and it'll solve all of these problems we got between each other. On whom dost thou trust? He's, this is a challenge. He's throwing down the gauntlet. Are you going to trust me or are you going to trust this God who has failed you? This is a question that needs to be asked. Whether it comes from a friend, whether it comes from a foe, we need to ask this question. Who are we going to trust? We need to ask it. We need to analyze it. Because we need to, we need to consider everything that's involved in this decision of trusting God. It needs to be answered. And by the way, this is a question for which all of us are accountable to God. There's no dodging this issue. God has already spoken. He's already given us His Word. He's already explained His expectations for us. And now it's a matter of whether we're going to trust Him or not. Are we going to trust Him or are we going to go with the flow? Are we going to trust Him or are we going to listen to popular opinion? Are we going to trust Him or are we just going to follow that gut feeling that we have in our heart or just leave it all up to faith that everything's going to turn out all right? 
we talk about sin in a lot of different ways, but I tell you, when it comes to this matter of refusing to trust God, that's as bad as it gets. When we refuse to trust God, we dishonor God. We displease God. We discredit God. We doubt Him, and then we, we deprive ourselves of the blessings that He has for us And that destroys our usefulness. It destroys any hope of of gaining the help that we so desperately need. And so the the whole issue here is all based upon who he was going to trust. And the same thing is true of us. And by the way, anytime that we trust God, I think I mentioned this last week, Trust in God always leads to obedience to God. And this is the key for us to be able to do what Solomon says whenever he closes out his writings there in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. He says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And those who trust the Lord will obey the Lord. It would just be great if this auditorium was absolutely filled with people. And if I could just go to each one individually, face to face, take your hand, look you in the eye, and ask you this question. On whom dost thou trust? On whom dost thou trust? How would you answer? I mean, if you answered truthfully, how would you answer? Because I can't answer that question for you. I can't answer that question for my own children or anyone else. But I can give you my answer, and that is, I trust in the triune God, the Trinity. I trust the Father. I trust Him because He foresaw my need before the foundation of the world. He promised and provided His Son to redeem me from my wretched condition. He gave me His Word to guide me, His Spirit to help me. He has provided all of my needs. He corrects me when I'm wrong. And over and over again, I trust my Heavenly Father. I trust the Son. The one who gave his life as a sacrifice for my sin. The one who was willing and did forgive me of all of my sins. The one who adorns me in the robe of his righteousness. Who transforms my life. Who is making intercession for me at this very moment at the throne of grace. Who is my advocate when I fail. He is my hope of glory. He's the one that is called faithful and true. Yes, I trust the Son. I trust the Father. I trust the Holy Spirit. He quickened me when I was dead in my trespasses and sins. He quickened me gave me life. He sealed me with eternal salvation. He subdued my stubborn will. He has comforted my troubled heart, enlightened my mind, illuminated the darkness around me, and imparted strength to deal with all of the attacks from the devil and all of the issues of life. He's in the business of transforming me even now into the likeness of of Christ himself. You see, the Spirit of God is the change agent. As we behold Christ, 
as in a mirror, as we behold Christ, as we look upon Him, we are changed from glory unto glory, even by the Spirit. I trust Him. Why? Because He assures me of the fact that I'm a child of God. He bears witness to that fact. You could burn my Bible and you can't destroy my confidence because the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. He guides our steps through the Word of God and promised to be with us and to keep us through all the ways of this world. I can truthfully say that I trust God. I don't trust myself. I cannot trust anybody else entirely, certainly not with my, with my soul, but I can trust God. I can trust Him because He created everything. He is in control of everything. He has conquered my enemies. He's changed my character. He's the one that's been there in my time of need and gave me comfort when my heart was troubled. Over and over again, He has never failed. And, 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 and I can tell you, truthfully tonight that my trust is in the Lord his power has not diminished one bit throughout the centuries he's the same God today as he was then the same one that raised up Jesus from the dead can raise you up out of the miry pit the same one who supplied the needs of the saints down through the centuries can meet your need because his power is never exhausted his love never wanes his faithfulness never fails he's always able to do whatever it is that his people need so the question i leave with you tonight is on whom dost thou trust some folks are wondering how in the world Am I going to get through all of this? How are we going to survive? What are we going to do? I'm telling you that there's nothing in the world that will meet your need other than your faith in God. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. He that cometh to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Would you let God reward you tonight by putting your trust in him and certainly if you've never received christ as your lord and savior you need to trust him for the salvation of your soul tonight and if you do i hope you'll contact me or brother preston or the church in some way and let us know if we can be of any spiritual guidance whatsoever and we certainly want to be praying for you and we offer our help in any way that we can and we just pray that if you're lost, that even tonight before you pillow your head, that you might trust Christ as your Savior. And if you already have, just remember that we are to walk by faith, not by sight, but it's by faith. Because God never leads us astray or leaves us in our time of need. May God bless you. Join with us again on Wednesday evening, 7 o'clock. Brother Preston will be bringing a message again from the book of Ruth, and we encourage you to tune in, invite someone to watch with you. Let us pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for all of your many blessings. We thank you for your word that guides us. We thank you, Lord, that you've proven yourself to be trustworthy. And Lord, we just pray tonight that each one of us might, might trust you and give evidence of our confidence by 
living our life in obedience to your will. And Lord, I pray that you'll help us in some way to be a blessing to someone throughout this week and that most of all, that they might see Jesus in us. God, help us to, to in some way communicate hope to other people that the world has not come to an end, but rather that you're able and you're willing to bring us through this difficult time. And we just pray that you'll be glorified in doing so. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.